strength and song Highest praise to Him belongs Christ the Lord, our conquering King Your name we raise, Your triumph sing Praise the Lord, our mighty warrior Praise the Lord, the glorious one By His hand we stand in victory And by His name we overcome Alright, good evening. We're excited about Gary Lee holding forth the word tonight. I first met this gentleman or got to know him. I think it may have been the first time I met him. Out in the woods in New Mexico, I went on the LEAD Outdoor Academy. I then called it BLEED. But um, so we were there in the winter and I uh, had to put on frozen boots every morning. And But I really saw this guy's heart and then we became friends his last year in the Corps and then through the years and he's spoken at some of our conferences in the 90s and uh, he's now one of our Living Truth Fellowship elders from Logan, West Virginia. Please welcome Gary Lee Corns. Sure is a blessing to be here. Uh, first, I want to thank the Board of Trustees, uh, John John and Franco, for inviting me to share with you this evening. I truly am blessed. I think Given this opportunity at this day and hour and what we're facing in the country, and it's the end of the year. You know, this is the last one for the crazy year of 2020, of all the insanity of things that have gone on. You know, hopefully what I have to share tonight might even spur you toward uh, a New Year's revolution rather than a resolution, but a revolution of life that might help you in your walk with the Lord. As was written in the little blurb, we often hear things about finding your calling. What does it mean to find your calling? And if you really find your calling, well, life just becomes wonderful and everything is great. And and I know that uh, these books and these teachings exist because I've read most of them and I've tried them. And uh, oftentimes I found that they really just cause me to spend more time inward focused rather than outward focused, and, and that tends to not be where I want to live my life. I think one of the fears that drives these sorts of books and these ideas is the, is the fear that you may end up living your life and, and dying with your book still inside you or your, uh, your song still inside you. You've probably heard these kinds of things before. I've heard them many, many times. And like I say, there's been lots of books written about these. But I started looking at this from the scriptures, and I started thinking about, you know, most of the people that we we encounter in God's Word, they're not people who knew from the time that they were very young that they were meant to be this or that, but rather they were people who whose lives were transformed not from the pursuit of an ambition, but rather from the pursuit of God. And that's what I want to share with you. And we're going to look at this in the life of one fellow. We're going to spend the entire time looking at this one fellow named Moses. You know, if the Lord tarries, we're all going to die. Uh, we hope that we're here and he returns, and hopefully before I get finished tonight. But if not, we will all die at some point. And how do you want to be remembered? I think Moses and what's written of Moses in the Scriptures is an example of a life well-lived, and of a death of peace and grace. Uh, you know, at, at first encounter, 
most people who encounter God, they either reply in one of two ways. They're either they're either feel fearful of God or they they have a sense of unworthiness. Moses sort of had both. I think he's the perfect example of what this is like. God must be the one who transforms us and not we ourselves. Moses will go from a man of asking, who am I, to a man saying, what about them? And let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 34 first. That's where we'll start first. And I just want to read you what the scriptures record about the life of Moses. Deuteronomy chapter 34, we'll pick it up in verse 5. Moses had climbed up to the top of Mount Nebo, just on the other side of the Jordan, and for his last visit with God. You'll see as we read through these, Moses spends a lot of time on the mountain with God, back and forth and back and forth, and he gets to know God. But he's there. God shows him the promised land, but he he says, Moses, you're not going to get to go in. And, you know, it's kind of sad, but it's also very, very intimate because God wasn't obligated to do this for Moses, but he did it for him anyway. And it picks up in verse 5, it says, And Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in Moab, as the Lord had said. He, the Lord, buried him in Moab, in the valley opposite Beth Peor. But to this day, no one knows where his grave is. Moses was 120 years old when he died, yet his eyes were not weak, nor his strength gone. The Israelites grieved for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days, until the time of weeping and mourning was over. Now Joshua, son of Nun, was filled with the spirit of wisdom because Moses had laid his hands on him. So the Israelites listened to him and did what the Lord had commanded Moses. Since then, no prophet has arisen like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, who did all those signs and wonders the Lord sent him to do in Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his officials and to the whole land. For no one ever shown the mighty power or performed the awesome deeds that Moses did in the sight of all of Israel. It says the Lord knew Moses face to face. And that is a figure, but it's, but it's more than a figure because it's pointing us to something that was very intimate between God and Moses, that it was a relationship and not just one of Moses knowing about God, but Moses knowing God. I don't believe any human being could ever have a greater epitaph written on their tombstone than to say that this is a person who knew the Lord face to face. Think about how beautiful those words are. You know, some say, well, it's because Moses was really faithful. He was he was chosen by God. He was called by God. But to me, the thing that is should be emphasized here is just how big our God is that he could take a guy like Moses, which we're going to see where Moses starts, and take him to the point where by the time of his death, he said Moses was his friend and he knew him face to face. That's an awesome God. Well, the first step in Moses' journey was to leave. In Hebrews chapter 11, you can look there if you want, and I'll read it to you. In, in Hebrews 11, verses 24 to 27, it says, By faith Moses... When he had grown up, he refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God, rather to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt, because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith, 
He left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. Now Moses begins his journey with God by turning his back on what was in his life at that time. He, and this is just not an ordinary life, by the way. Moses was raised in Pharaoh's court, in Pharaoh's home. He had wealth. He had fame. He had honor. He was educated. He had all the things that most humans spend their entire life looking for. And yet that is the very thing that Moses turned his back on. Are these things evil? No, they're not. They're not at all. But they weren't soul satisfying. Moses had an itch. He had an itch in his heart that only one thing was going to satisfy, and that was God. So Moses left. Look at Romans 12. You might see a parallel here in the scriptures of the church epistles written directly to us. Essentially, Moses had everything that we want, but he refused that identity. He made a conscious decision to accept the consequences of a separated life so that he could pursue the life that he saw from God. In Romans 12, 1 and 2, it says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. The first step that Moses took was to remove himself from the situation, his environment. These verses are basically saying the same thing. Our bodies belong to us. We decide what we eat, what we hear, what we see, how we communicate, where we travel. Now, do we enjoy the pleasures of our flesh more than we seek the rewards? If we do, then we're stuck in Egypt. We've got to leave Egypt, just like Moses did. Go to Exodus chapter 2. We're going to start there, and we're going to trace through Moses' life in the book of Exodus and see how God works with Moses and transforms him into a mighty friend of his. And in Exodus chapter 2, we'll pick it up in verse 11. It says, one day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were, and he watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people, looking this way and that and seeing no one. He killed the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then, the, then Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. When Pharaoh heard this, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Now, these verses sort of create a tension about why Moses left. Hebrews said he left not fearing the king's anger. This shows the attitude of Moses' heart behind his decision to leave, that it was not fear-based, but rather faith-based. He was not fleeing from the king so much as he was fleeing from the world that he was leaving behind, his world, because he was af not because he was afraid, but because he wanted more of God. So that was the first thing Moses did is the first thing we should do. We have to flee Egypt. We have to flee the world and all its treasures. So where did he go? 
Well, he went to Midian. Now, Midian is a land east of Egypt. It's over there in the, uh, it's what's commonly today, I guess, called Syria. And Midian was one of the children of Abraham. So you might say that Moses fled Egypt looking for some of the people of his own heritage. He went to where one of these sons of Abraham, Midian, had gone to settle. So that makes sense. But he recognized also that the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, were given the promises. But he recognized that the people were not spiritually where they needed to be, those that were in Egypt. So he went to where some people were that might be and know about God. So the question we have to ask ourselves in similar fashion is, are we willing to remove ourselves from the lives of familiar religious people and practices? Or do we just keep doing the same thing and expecting a different result? Are we hungry enough for God that we'll say, you know, what I'm doing isn't working. Maybe it's time for me to flee Egypt. Maybe it's time for me to seek God outside of the the little confines that I'm living in right now. Maybe God might be out there. Who knows? Here's the thing. Sameness is always safe. But God is rarely found in sameness. We find God when we're willing to venture out and step out and look for him. Go down to chapter 3. Pick it up in verse 1. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness, and he came to Horeb, the mount of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Now Moses saw that bush. Though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I'll go over and see this strange sight, why the bush doesn't burn up. And when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. And so here begins what I think of as the sacred dance. This is going to be a beautiful dance between God and Moses that will begin at this moment and will continue throughout his life of one of growing intimacy with the Lord. We'll watch Moses become transformed from a me-focused to a God-focused to an other-focused life over over the course of time. So let me ask you this. What character trait can we learn here from this moment about Moses' journey with God? Well, I'm going to say he's curious. He's curious. He is willing to to look around him and see, to turn aside and see, could that be God? Could God be at work over here? See, if I've already defined God, based on some religious ideology that I have of what God can and can't do and where he will and will not work, then there's a a great possibility that I could miss a lot of the time where God is at work. 
You know, we look around our own communities. You might see something happening in your community. Maybe there are several Christians in your own community who have started participating in a prayer vigil. Is that God at work? Maybe. Are you curious enough to turn aside and look? Or are you just going to stay in my predefined understanding of who God is and how God works? Moses didn't. He was curious. He turned aside. And Moses' answer was really good. He said, here I am. Now, that was a loaded reply. But what it really means is I'm present. I'm here. And that's the the thing that we have to first, once we turn aside, once we think we might have seen something of God at work around us or in our lives or in our communities, do we show up? Do we show up and say, God, here I am. I'm available. What would you have me to do, Lord? How often do I exhaust my alone time with God talking about me? You know, do you have your alone time when you get alone with the Lord and you pray? How much of that time do I spend talking about me? Or how much of the time do I say, God, what's on your heart? God, where are you at work in my community? God, show me what you would do right here, right now where I live. What would happen if I simply asked God to talk, to speak to my heart, and I listened rather than talk? Do I read my Bible for information and understanding, or do I read it for revelation? Do I read it to learn more about God and who he is, or am I just trying to get more understanding of how things work and find the programs and try and make God fit into my box? Am I looking to know the character of God, or am I simply trying to improve my own life? You see. Most people always want to see the hand of God. They want to see the power of God, the miracle of God. But I'm going to say that before we ever see God's hand, we should first seek his face. Seek to get to know him as a person. He created us. He is our father. That's where our heart should be pouring out, is to get to know him. God's reply to Moses is very interesting. And so God starts to talk to him, and God said, I'll turn aside to see this bush. Moses said, here I am. Verse 5, God said, don't get any closer. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you're standing is holy ground. He added, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. God's reply to Moses is the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I've heard of their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. I've come down to deliver them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from the land to a land of milk and honey, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, so on. And now, indeed, the cry of the Israelites has come to me, and I have also seen how severely the Egyptians oppressed them. So now go... And I will send you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out. And so he says, Moses, I'm going to send you. And what was Moses' reply? Moses' reply was, next verse, who am I? Who am I? Now, I think that's a logical question, but I don't think it's the right question. And you're going to see Moses is going to get to the right question. But he starts out and he says, who am I? Again, he's he's 
He's thinking about himself and what his own inabilities are. And then God starts working with Moses, and he starts talking to him about, well, he shows him some signs, and he 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 says in verse 14, God replies to Moses, or verse 13, he says, If I go to the Israelites and tell them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What should I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am that I am. And that that can be translated a lot of ways. And basically it is, I am present. That's what God was saying. I am who I will need to be. I'm here. I'm now. I'm not something in your future. You know, most of us, when we talk about God in our lives, at least it's been my experience that, you know, we talk about him in the past, about when we first spoke in tongues and how wonderful that was, how well we got saved. You know, we, we speak of him in the past or we speak of him in the future, of what God is going to do in the future. But how many of us really think about what is in the present? God, in answering Moses, said, I am. I'm a verb. I'm now. He didn't say, I will be this or I will be that or I have been this, or I have been that, although he brings those things up. But I believe the point he's trying to make to Moses is, I'm here right now. We read and tell about God's mighty ways, but God wants to be in our present awareness. God's teaching Moses so that he can then teach the children of Israel that the I am, the God of the now, the present, is going to be with them. And he's not going to be just the God of Jacob and Abraham and Isaac. He will be the God of their present. So Moses begins to go through his whole series of objections on why he's not the right guy. Well, I'm just not the right person for this assignment. His next objection is, well, nobody's going to believe me. So then in chapter 4, Moses, God says, Moses answered and said, what if they don't believe me or listen to me or say, well, the Lord didn't appear to you. And the Lord said to him, what's in your hand? A staff, Moses replied. And the Lord said, throw it down. Now, the staff was a representation in in some sense here of Moses' life. What had Moses been doing for the last 40 years? He'd been a shepherd in the wilderness. He had left behind Egypt. He had walked away from that perfect life that most people would pursue. He'd gone to the land of Midian and been a shepherd for 40 years. He'd been a shepherd. And that staff represented the essence of who he was, his identity. And God said, throw it down. And so he threw it down, and God made it turn into a snake. And from this time forward, that staff that was in Moses' hand will become a tool in Moses' hand to perform incredible miracles. Now let me ask you this. What's in your hand? Not what's in your wallet. I know you've heard that one. But what's in your hand? In other words, what is your life made up of? What is it that you have that you can lay down before God and allow God to work through that? Is it a piano? Is it maybe a strong work ethic? Is it money? Is it cooking? Is it tutoring children? What is it that's in your life that you can throw down at the feet of God? and see if God can transform it. You know, God took this staff with Moses, and he did the snake trick. He changed the Nile River into blood. He infested the land of Egypt with frogs. He brought hail upon the land out of heaven. 
He filled the land with locusts. He parted the Red Sea. Miracles that only God could do if he only had a staff. God could work with him. What's in your hand? Am I willing to throw down my staff? Am I willing to ask God to take whatever ordinary things there are in my life and allow him to transform them for the blessing of other people? Am I willing to give those as an offering? That's what Romans 12 was talking about, right? It's our lives, and we can lay them down as an offering. Well, this is part of it. Your staff is part of your life, not just your body. So I'm asking what's in your hand. Now, finally, we're going to look at the last part of life of Moses. It moves very rapidly, and I recommend a great study, a great read, is just to read through the book of Exodus and just watch how this relationship between God and Moses just keeps getting stronger and stronger and stronger as he goes along, as he learns to be in God's presence and to lay his life out before him and allow God to change him. We read that if you read on in the in the, the book of Genesis, you'll find that just three months after they had left the land of Egypt, in only three months, they were at the foot of the mountain, Mount Sinai. Three months from the time they left Egypt to Mount Sinai. And this is the place where God had chosen that he was going to meet the people and make a covenant with them. And the covenant would be sort of a marriage, you might say, between God and his people. And Moses makes several trips up and down the mountain, up and down the mountain, to hear from God and to come back and bring the word of God back to the people. God had invited the people to come up on the mountain to meet with him. So we'll pick it up in chapter 19. So those earlier chapters there are there, you know, his, his whole confrontations with with Pharaoh and coming out of Egypt and all of that. But here now he's with the people and he's over at the mountain of God, it's called. In Exodus chapter 19, let's pick it up in verse 3. Then Moses went up to God and the Lord God called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. See, God's heart from the very beginning has been to have a relationship with humanity. And the children of Israel were God's way of trying to win humanity back to relationship with him. They were to be a kingdom of priests. That was what they were called to do. They weren't special just because God randomly picked someone to be special. He wanted them to be a kingdom of priests, to win the world, to win the nations. So, verse, uh, these are the words that you speak to the Israelites. Verse 7, so Moses went back, summoned the elders of the people, and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people also responded together. We will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, I am going to come down to you in a dense cloud 
so that the people will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. Isn't that beautiful? God said, look, Moses, here's what I'm going to do in helping you learn how to walk with me and walk in service to the people. I'm going to show myself strong in your life, not for you, but for the people, so that the people will always be able to believe in you. In Exodus chapter 20, we see here that the people, uh, in verses 18 to 20, the people would not approach God at the manifest power of God because they were afraid of him. You know, God shows up on this mountain and they can see smoke and fire and all of this noise up on top of the mountain. And they said, you know, we, we don't want to go up there. <laughs> when the people saw the thunder and all this stuff, well, we'll read it there in verse uh, at, at verse 18. Pick it up in verse 18. When the people saw the thunder and the lightning and they heard the trumpet and saw the mountain and smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance. And they said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we're going to listen. But do not have God speak to us for we will die. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. The people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. And I love the NET translation that says that the people kept their distance, but Moses drew near. He drew near. See, Moses and God, Moses was learning not to be afraid of God, not to fear that alone time with God, not to fear that mountaintop time with God, but he was longing for it. He spends a lot of time upon that mountain, up and down and up and down. And every time he's, he's growing in his confidence of who God is and who he is. Moses didn't set out to be anything except to know God, but God was able to transform him. Go to chapter 32. Jump over there. Now, from chapters, uh, well, about uh, chapter 22 on through 31 is all instructions. God giving Moses instructions about the tabernacle, about all the instruments that are going to be in the tabernacle, the giving of the law, all these different things. And the people are all down off the mountain. Now, Moses is up on the mountain at this time. And this is when you have the famous golden calf incident. And this is a wonderful little section to read to see just how Moses and God had learned to interact with one another. And in chapter 32, in verse 7, it says, The Lord said to Moses, Go down, because your people, whom you brought out of Egypt, have become corrupt. And this is, this is so cool. I mean, God had from the beginning been telling Moses, My people, I've heard their cry. I'm bringing them out. You know, I'm going to deliver them. And he brought them out of Egypt and through the, through the uh, Red Sea and out across the desert to the mountain where he wanted to meet with them and have a, a covenant relationship with them. And Moses had been up on the mountain for a while. And the people were freaking out and they built the golden calf. Now, God knows this. And that's what you got to kind of keep in your mind as you're reading this. God knows what they're doing. Moses doesn't. So God's saying to Moses, you know, this people that you brought out, your people, <laughs> you, whom you brought out of Egypt, they have become corrupt. They've been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a cat. They've bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, 
These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. Verse 9, I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they're a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. I will make you into a great nation. Now, wait a minute. Have I ever heard that before? Yeah, that was exactly the promise that God had made to Abraham way back there, right? So God's basically saying, hey, Mo, let's just do a do-over here. We've done them before. Let's do a do-over. I can't deal with these people. I'll make you into a great nation. But look at verse 11. Look how far Moses' heart has come. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off of the face of the earth. Turn from your fierce anger. Relent and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. Then the Lord relented, and it did not and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. Now, we know that God doesn't commit evil. We know that. We understand that. If you don't know that, you need to read our books. But the point here that I want you to see is Moses' heart. You know, Moses goes to bat for these people, even though they've not done what God had asked him to do. They've not obeyed the Lord. Moses is now to the place where he's even reminding God, he's saying, hey, now, God, you don't want to look bad in front of the Egyptians. I mean, golly, think about it. I mean, they're going to say, oh, this God, Yahweh, yeah, he took his people out in the desert to kill them. You know, isn't it amazing how his heart went from being one of selfishness and just, you know, who am I? Oh, I can't do it. Oh, don't look at me, God. Oh, no, no, not me, not me, not me. To now where he's saying, hey, God, let me remind you of who you are. You're a gracious God. You're a good God. That's the kind of relationship we should all be seeking to have. Moses' life had been slowly transformed. He's now fully engaged in the lifestyle of staying close to God. In fact, his alone time became so precious that when his mountaintop experiences were over with, guess what Moses did? He made his own special place to go and meet God. It was called the Tent of Meeting. We'll read about it in Exodus chapter 33. In chapter 33, and in verse 7, it says, Now Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp some distance away, calling it the Tent of Meeting. Anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to the tent of meeting outside the camp. And whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people rose and stood at the entrance to their tents, watching Moses until he entered the tent. And Moses went into the tent as Moses went into the tent. The pillar of cloud would come down and stay at the entrance while the Lord spoke with Moses. Whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance to the tent, they all stood and worshipped each at the entrance to their tent. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. Then Moses would return to the camp, but his young aide Joshua, son of Nun, did not leave the tent. And I think this is where Joshua, it was in these experiences of Moses and God and Moses and God and Joshua being there seeing this, I believe that is what trained 
Joshua to do what he had to do in taking the children of Israel over the Jordan into the promised land. He saw that it was a commitment of intimacy that made all the difference. You know, Jesus, you probably have read uh, in the Gospels, some of the Gospels, I used to read these verses and I thought, that's, that's good. You know, it says Jesus saw uh, these two guys out by the sea and he walked up to him and said, follow me. And they followed him. And I, that, that doesn't make any sense. I mean, surely he did more than that. Of course, if you've seen the movie that I saw, it was like Jesus was almost like floating on a cloud, you know, with two little fingers up. And he kind of walks by and just goes, follow me. And they just, you know, in a trance, follow him. But I don't believe that's at all what happened. You know, what's Jesus asking them to do? Come hang out. Come be with me. Get to know me, the person. You know, he didn't say, let me teach you the Bible. No, he said, follow me, me, a person. And that's what they did. Now, I'm not against learning the Bible, but I know that I spent a great many years of my life doing exactly that, just looking for God in the Bible, but I was never curious enough to look around my neighborhood. I was never curious enough to say, God, where are you at work in my life? Are you a present God, or are you only a God that I can read about and remember from old and hope for the future? No, he's a very present God, but it takes us putting ourselves in his presence and saying, God, I don't need to know about me. Who am I? Doesn't matter. Who are you, God? Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to share my heart with your people tonight. God, you know my heart, and I know I it's not the perfection of the words, I hope, Lord, but rather the perfection of your spirit and your working in the lives of your people. And may each one who hears this gain something from it, Lord, to encourage them to seek you more with their whole heart. In Jesus' name.